You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. Join our Patreon for extra episodes, interviews, extra content, and to help support the podcast and help us continue to do the work we do. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl to learn more. An axe age, a sword age. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm the fun one. I mean, I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. So, Jen, what would you say was the worst year to be alive on planet Earth? I mean, I don't know. 2020 was a real rough year for me. I mean, okay, like my village wasn't sieged and thankfully most of my family have made it through intact. But yeah, that was a really hard year. It was a really hard year for us and for many people alive today. There are probably years in human history that were a lot worse. The Black Death, perhaps. 1346 that killed maybe 200 million people in Europe. That was a bad year. I mean, yeah, the 1918 influenza epidemic, sometimes called the Spanish flu epidemic, that killed about 100 million people, mostly the young and strong. And this is particularly devastating as it came at the tail end of World War One. So if the war didn't take you, then the flu just might. Yeah, that was also a bad year. I mean, what was the worst year to be alive is kind of a loaded question, too. Yeah, super loaded, Jenny. This may depend on regionality and your cultural background and a lot of other things. When was the worst year to be alive for certain groups of people? Absolutely. But a number of historians have a very specific answer to this question, and it is a date you might not have heard of unless you're just a raging volcano nerd like Jen. And like me by proxy, that year is 536 A.D. Are you talking about 536 AD, the sexiest, sexiest year if you're a volcano nerd who knows just a little bit about what happened? Yeah, well, get ready, because after this episode, you're going to know just a little bit more about what happened. So why 536 AD? Well, this is a year when, according to documentary, archaeological, mythological, and physical evidence, things went extremely south, like really south on a global level for everybody. The sun disappeared for 18 months as the world was plunged into darkness and covered in a veil of sulfuric dust. 
The global temperature dropped significantly. Summer disappeared and it was just winter all the time, all year round for multiple years. I mean, you're describing a terrifying volcanic winter. Get ready for Jen to get real excited about some really heinous shit. I just find it like fascinating in the way that you can't control anything and therefore you're drawn to it like a moth to a flame. Anyway, let's talk about why 536 AD was the worst year. Crops failed, people starved and fell to eating each other. Cannibalism and other warring over scarce resources. In some places, torrential rain caused intense flooding that drowned whole communities, followed by decades of drought. People prayed and sacrificed and lost all faith in their gods. This event caused civilizations to collapse, some immediately, others after decades or centuries of holding on. Some historians have credited these events with the fall of the Roman Empire, the torching of Teotihuacan, the rise of the Islamic religion, and the onset of the European Dark Age. To name a few. I mean, come on. That is so wild, and a volcano did it. Yes, the culprit, a volcano. Or maybe multiple volcanoes. But which one or ones are still a mystery? This is a historical mass murder on a global level, and it is still unsolved. Well, I mean... I don't think volcanoes are capable of, like, mass murder. Like, they don't think about humans as being someone they're murdering. Well, I mean, does it matter? I guess with the legal definition of murder, you need some kind of intent. Maybe you could classify this as manslaughter. Maybe, but you're you're assigning a volcano, like, the ability to, like, make a judgment and then do something. Like, a volcano is going to erupt when it's going to geologically erupt. Like, it's, you know, it's like you killing an anthill. Like, are you an anthill mass murderer or did the ants just get in the way and you're a bigger thing? I don't know. I think from the perspective of the ants, I am indeed an ant mass murderer. <laughs> anyway, so let's look at some of the evidence that we have accumulated so far for this incredibly murdery, incredibly deadly event. One of the first scientists who noticed something was weird about 536 AD was dendrochronologists, people who study tree rings. Trees contain a history of their growth and their life in their rings. If you cut a tree, you can see the patterns of its growth for each year of its life. A wide ring represents a good year of rapid growth, plenty of sunlight, the right amount of rainfall, hospitable weather. A narrow ring represents a bad year of bad weather and minimal growth. You can see how the climatic conditions were in various areas of the world and time periods by looking at tree rings and by consolidating the data from lots of different trees in lots of different times. You can build a fuller picture. Yeah, because different trees will have the same pattern of tree rings for the same years, because it, if they're like, you know, close together and nearby, because they were all growing under the same conditions, you know? So I got this information from a documentary entitled The Year the Sun Turned Black, The Volcanic Eruption of 536 A.D., and it highlights the work of an academic called David Keyes, who's written extensively on this. And so a note on David Keyes. He's one of the first academics to start putting all the pieces together to identify this volcanic event in 536 AD. And others have corroborated his work in a lot of areas, so I wouldn't call him a pseudo-historian or anything like that. But some of his conclusions are controversial, especially the conclusions that he draws about large historical events that were ostensibly caused by the volcano. Other historians are hesitant to draw broad conclusions about how this eruption caused, I don't know, the rise of the Mongol Empire or other things that happened centuries after. I have my own opinions about some of that stuff, which we'll get into later. Anyway, 
In this documentary, Keyes talks about how he first realized something was weird about the year 536 AD when he attended an archaeology conference in 1994. He said, quote, One particular talk really amazed me. It was a lecture given by a dendrochronologist called Mike Bailey. He was giving a lecture about how all the tree rings in the world really went haywire somewhere in the middle of the 6th century. Tree rings can be precisely dated. Researchers have compiled data from trees found still growing, as well as wood used in the construction of historical buildings. We now have a record of the tree ring data in some areas going back 7.5 thousand years. Trees did indeed go haywire in the middle of the 500s AD. Keyes later worked with Mike Bailey, who specialized in tree rings and Irish oaks, and connected with other dendrochronologists around the world looking at other populations of trees. So from the documentary... In Irish Oaks, quote, it was 10 years ago that Mike Bailey noticed his oak rings went abnormally narrow in the mid-6th century, A.D., signs that something very powerful was stopping the trees from growing. In Finland, quote, a really abrupt drop in 536, a bit of a recovery in 537 and 538, and then it drops dramatically into 542. Foxtail pine rings from the Sierra Nevadas in California, quote, 535, 536, and 541 were three of the five worst years in the past two millennia. In Chile, quote, Fitzroya trees record the greatest summer growth drop of the past 1,600 years. In Siberia, quote, a 20-year decline in tree growth in the 530s and 540s was the most serious in the past 1,900 years. What was stopping these trees from growing? Drought? Darkness? Cold? Pollution? It turns out, maybe all of the above. You would think that if such a profound event really happened all over the world in 536 AD, that the evidence would show up in the civilizations affected. People were writing things down at this point, and it would also show up in the archaeology, right? I mean, this seems like a no-brainer. Well, it turns out there was copious written and archaeological evidence of weird weather and all its profound effects that made this year, and the years and decades after it, some of the worst times to be alive. A lot of the documentation we get from this period comes from ancient Rome and the ancient Mediterranean because they wrote a lot of things down. One of the most substantial descriptions of this time comes from the letters of Cassiodorus, a Roman statesman who lived during this time. We have a collection of his letters, including a letter to a subordinate with instructions on relieving a severe famine in Italy. This letter, dated to early autumn of 538 AD, goes into detail on the dramatic weather observed over the past few years. Quote, Since the world is not governed by chance, but by a divine ruler who does not change his purposes at random, men are alarmed, and naturally alarmed, at the extraordinary signs in the heavens, and ask with anxious hearts what events these may portend. The sun, first of stars, seems to have lost his wonted light, and appears of a bluish color. We marvel to see no shadows of our bodies at noon, to feel the mighty vigor of his heat wasted into feebleness, and the phenomena which accompany a transitory eclipse prolonged throughout a whole year. Quote, the moon, too, even when her orb is full, is empty of her natural splendor. Strange has been the course of the year thus far. We have had a winter without storms, a spring without mildness, and a summer without heat. Whence can we look for harvest? Since the months, which should have been maturing the corn, have been chilled by Boreas. How can the blade open if the rain, 
the mother of all fertility, is denied to it. These two influences, prolonged frost and unseasonable drought, must be adverse to all things that grow. The seasons seem to be all jumbled up together, and the fruits, which were wont to be formed by gentle showers, cannot be looked for from the parched earth. But, as last year was one that boasted of an exceptionally abundant harvest, you are to collect all of its fruits that you can and store them up for the coming months of scarcity, for which it is well able to provide, and that you may not be too much distressed by the signs in the heavens of which I have spoken. Return to the consideration of nature, and apprehend the reason of that which makes the vulgar gape with wonder. So right away, we see a lot of spooky weather effects that directly lead to famine and privation. Shall we go through these, Jen? Yeah, but before we do, when I was reading this, like, um, when I was reading it, just to quality check it, and now again, as I've read this paragraph, I always read that as the vulgar grape with wonder. And I'm like, man, wouldn't that be a great name for a vineyard? Maybe one day off this podcast, I'll make enough money to have the vulgar grape as my vineyard. You mean the vulgar gape with wonder, that line? Yeah, but... I just read it as the vulgar grape. <laughs> That's adorable. I always I always figured that if you had a vineyard, you'd call it Dionysus's secret blend or something. But I guess that's your blend. That's what you'd call it. Well, yeah, it would be the vulgar grape. And then everything would be named after Dionysus and his maenads and different gods and goddesses. And yeah. And which cauldron does this wine come from? <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. I'd have the different cauldrons. Like we'd have like, Dionysus's special reserve. We'd have the Dionysus blend. Then we'd have some Maynas and Ariadne. I mean, Hermes would get his foot in there because Hermes always does. The cauldron that causes the depression, the cauldron that causes the breaking of furniture, you know, all of that fun stuff. Oh, yeah. Well, I would just be like cauldron one, you know, for the good times. Cauldron two for, you know, the really good times. Cauldron six for madness, you know. (laughs) I love that it's clearly labeled so you can choose what night you're going to have ahead of time. I mean, look, I want people to know what they're getting. Anyway, so let's take a closer look at some of the spooky weather effects that we're seeing in this in this eyewitness account here, shall we, Jen? So, the sun is not as bright. It's weirdly bluish. The moon also isn't very bright, even when it's full. Our bodies cast no shadow at noon. The sky is like an eclipse or dark all year. Quote, a winter without storms, a spring without mildness, and a summer without heat. So the global temperature has dropped a lot. Yeah, and all of the things that sort of make the seasons turn and are necessary to have crops that grow and stuff don't exist. Your spring is not mild, like nothing ever warms up. And when you do get to summer, there is no heat behind it, so nothing grows. Yeah. There was no rain. The seasons seem to be all jumbled up together. There was no harvest, no fruit, and no food. And this account was dated to 538. So two years after the events of 536 AD, this stuff was still going on. These were long-lasting effects. So the next two letters in the collection with Cassiodorus uh, document efforts to assuage famine. He was really occupied with that. Cassiodorus writes to another official about a petition from the people of Venice to be relieved of their tax obligations for the year because their crops of wine, wheat, and millet had all failed. He agrees to remit the taxes of all but meat. He also writes to the Bishop of Milan, requesting that he open the granaries in famine-stricken provinces and sell millet at a cheap price. Cassiodorus wants the bishop to handle this personally, to keep corrupt officials from selling the grain at a markup or funneling it to the rich. Quote, It is the poor, not the rich, that we wish to help. We would pour our bounty into empty vessels, he says. 
Other mentions include Michael the Syrian, writing in the 1100s AD. He said that during the year 536 to 537 AD, quote, the sun became dark and in its darkness lasted for one and a half years. Each day it shone for about four hours and still this light was only a feeble shadow. The fruits did not ripen and the wine tasted like sour grapes. Not the wine! No, Dionysus was not having a time. A good time, anyway. So John of Ephesus, who was writing in the 500s AD and was an eyewitness, said, quote, 535 to 536 AD, there was a sign from the sun, the like over which have never been seen and reported before. The sun became dark and its darkness lasted for 18 months. Each day it shone for about four hours, and still this light was only a feeble shadow. Everyone declared that the sun would never recover its full light again. According to an anonymous Syrian chronicler, quote, The sun began to be darkened by day and the moon by night, while the ocean was tumultuous with spray. From the 24th of March in this year till the 24th of June in the following year. And next winter in Mesopotamia, conditions got so bad that, quote, from the large and unwanted quantity of snow, the birds perished, end quote. Like what we're seeing here is having to do with those seas being so tumultuous. Like, I know we're going to talk in a little bit about like the culprits, but it makes me think there was probably a lot of seismic activity going on under the sea that probably made things a little bit more stressful. And I know we'll talk later on about some of the climate changes that happened. It's possible that there were there was problems here in the Syria area and the Mediterranean area as a result of this. It really depends on where the volcano was that was erupting because earthquakes would be closer to where the volcano is, you would think, or at least along that fault line. Yes and no, because I don't think that this volcanic winter was caused by one volcano. I think it was probably caused by several volcanoes. And I think, you know, what you might be seeing is eruptions along a volcanic seam across like a vast majority of places that were just ready to go. And so you would have seen tumultuous seas. And yeah, if you're not getting the storms that normally come in, what are you getting to make the the seas the way they are? Fascinated. So Procopius, writing an account of the Vandalic Wars, documents the same thing. So he was also born in the year 500 and he was also an eyewitness. Writing about the year of 536 AD, Procopius says, quote, And it came about during this year that a most dread portent took place, for the sun gave forth its light without brightness, like the moon during this whole year, and it seemed exceedingly like the sun in eclipse, for the beams it shed were not clear, nor such as it is accustomed to shed. And from the time when this thing happened, men were free, neither from war, nor pestilence, nor any other thing leading to death. And it was the time when Justinian was in the 10th year of his reign. So he mentions plague and Justinian or the Justinian plague, which Jenny is a little bit obsessed with. I am totally obsessed with the Justinian plague, you guys. I cannot wait to tell you all about it. Oh, my God. Don't spoil anything for them. They're going to think you're excited because it might be coming up this season. What? I can't confirm nor deny that it might be the next episode after this. I don't know. Um. So this plague lasted nine years from 541 to 549 AD. Really, it would come back in waves for another 200 years or so. So it, it lasted more than, than the, just like the first wave of it lasted about that long, approximately. Yeah. Because the Justinian Plague is possibly the first recorded outbreak of a little-known thing called the Bubonic Plague. 
or Yersinia pestis. The Black Death. Ever heard of it? Yeah. Buboes. I'm going to continue on because I don't find this as sexy as volcanoes. Anyway, some scholars believe that plague could easily have hit harder as a result of prolonged periods of drought, famine, and environmental upheaval. Under that much stress, people's immune systems would be severely run down. According to some accounts, at the height of the plague, people were dying at a rate of 10,000 people per day. Uh, when Jenny sent me this or sent me this to look through and I saw that fact, I was like, absolutely. I mean, they're not getting any vitamin D from their sun. The sun is too weak. The fruits aren't there to harvest. Think about all the things you get when you can't get like good fruit and nutrition, like scurvy. The food, you know, the food supply would be disrupted. And like the food supply gets disrupted anyway because of the plague. But it would have already been disrupted. And there's also there's climate change stuff that may have caused the outbreak as well. But I'm going to go into that in the episode because it's kind of lengthy. So the plague spread across Europe, Asia, North Africa, and Arabia, by some estimates killing as many as 30 to 50 million people, but I've also seen 100 million people or more by the time it burned itself out. There are some who believe that the upheaval caused by this period of famine, plague, cold, and spooky weather may have been one major element that led to the fall of the Roman Empire as a whole. Not everyone agrees with that, but that is one theory. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. So, the ancient Chinese also wrote a lot of things down. And the picture we get of the weather in China around this time comes from multiple sources, including the Baishi Chronicles, the History of the North, and the Nanshi Chronicles, or the History of the South. And both of these were compiled around 659 AD, um, as well as some other sources. Now, according to the sources, the first sign that something was wrong was that the star, Canopus, couldn't be seen in the spring and fall equinoxes of 536 AD. Now, this was considered a very bad omen, as astrologers looked for the star's emergence to differentiate the seasons and as a reassuring sign that things would be good in the coming months. So, starting in 536 and continuing into 538 AD, the winter simply did not end in China. Severe frost and heavy snowfall in the summer blighted the crops, ruining the harvest in the fall. Extreme famine and drought occurred, causing starvation, cannibalism, and widespread death. In some areas, as many as 70 to 80 percent of the people died, and those who lived resorted to eating corpses to survive. The drought got so bad that the imperial court gave an order that water be provided to everyone at the palace and at all imperial offices. They also gave orders that all the corpses be buried because apparently there were a lot of unburied dead bodies. In some provinces, mass flooding occurred. Frogs took refuge in the trees. Should we pause and talk about the frogs? Yeah, we should. I left the frogs in because I was like, Jen's going to have something to say about that. Of course we do, because we learned in our first episode of this season, the Ten Plagues of Egypt, that frogs are indicator species. 
because they're amphibians and they can live on both land and in the water, when frogs are kind of in places they're not normally, i.e. trees, what does that tell us about the water? There's something wrong with the water, Jenny. Possibly it's all that dust that was falling throughout the land and into the water. Yeah, which would have polluted the water. So the frogs would have taken their chances living in trees, which is not their natural habitat waiting for rain. But as we know with like the 10 plagues of Egypt, when frogs aren't in their natural space, there are knock-on effects, knock-on effects that lead to plague. Because the frogs will die off quickly because they are more sensitive to changes in their climate, meaning that there are less natural predators to eat the insects that eventually spread the plague. Right. And there might be, you know, vermin eating the dead frogs that bring disease as well. Absolutely. Um, And again, I just find it fascinating knowing what I know about frogs. Now I'm a little obsessed. So in both 536 and 537 AD, the chroniclers report that heavy dust fell across the land, a yellow dust, falling at such depth that people could scoop it up with their hands. By 550 AD, Things were still so bad that, quote, people ate people everywhere, according to one translation, i.e. they resorted to cannibalism. The famine and drought were so widespread and lasted so long that it led to widespread economic and social collapse. In 557 AD, the existing government collapsed, replaced by the new Chen dynasty. So in Japan, there's some evidence that this was a factor as well. And I found fewer quotes and evidence about this time period in Japan. But here's one thing I did find. In 540, the Japanese great king wrote, quote, food is the basis of the empire. Yellow gold and 10,000 strings of cash cannot cure hunger. What avails a thousand boxes of pearls to him who is starving of cold? Exactly. That's not an insight you would expect from an aristocrat who's led an easy life. Um, actually, the complete opposite. Like, it's the basic tenet of, of governing. Feed your people or lose your throne. And if your people aren't well, well fed, you're going to face economic and societal collapse, which is what we're seeing so far. Mm-hmm. Feed your people or lose your throne. So, the Gaelic-Irish annals. I love the word annals, which we come across a lot because I always see it as annals. <laughs> I do, too. And then sometimes I want to change it to annuals. And I'm like, that is also not the word that is in front of me. Well, I always want to change it to annals. So I guess yours is a little more appropriate. We're getting into the annals of time. So the Gaelic Irish annals or annals was recorded. <laughs> <laughs> which rec- <laughs> What are we doing? <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> I have to say this word so many times. Fuck you. (laughs) You love me. (laughs) I don't know. So the Gaelic Irish annals, which recorded ancient Irish history, documented the deaths of kings and plagues and other important events. It also documents famines. According to the reports, frost came during the harvest, which caused the apple crop to go bad. Then Crops failed on a much wider level. The ancient Irish called this, quote, failure of bread. So the annual, so the annals that we're getting this from are the annals of Ulster, which documented a failure of bread in the year 536 AD, and the annals of Innisfallen, which also documented a failure of bread from the years 536 to 539 AD. Their famine lasted a little longer. So ancient oak tree rings show a growth pattern that suggests winter weather conditions during the summer of 536 AD, showing how widespread the weather pattern was. 
From Ireland to Italy and across China, the winter simply did not end. There was no summer. See, this is our good friend Angel and I have had a massive debate over like how the weather works in Game of Thrones. And I'm just like, it just must be a series of volcanic winters. That's the only way you get winters that don't end. The oak trees that dendrochronologists were looking at to get this information, by the way, they were scavenged from cranogs. And those are wooden dwellings or island forts that people build in lakes in Ireland and Scotland. These are like an Irish and Scottish phenomenon from 2,000 years ago. Refuges during particular periods of upheaval. These were fortified settlements and sometimes just houses. And the Irish first started building them during the mid-500s AD. So they originate, from what I can tell, during this time. The picture in Ireland is that the temperature got extremely cold, crops failed, and people were forced to rely on hunting and gathering, reverting back to a much more austere lifestyle. Many would have died in famine. Conflict escalated over diminishing resources, so warfare probably increased as well. Some built cranogs as refuges in the middle of lakes to protect themselves from the violence. Can you imagine taking to the middle of a lake to try to avoid violence? Yeah, in the in the midst of the cold. You know what this reminds me of? King Arthur and the Lady of the Lake. Well, we're getting to that, Jen. So, mythology is another place we can look to when searching for evidence of this time in history. And one of the most fascinating places to look is in the stories of King Arthur. Now, the history of King Arthur's legend is super complicated, to say the least. We could make up a whole episode on that alone, and maybe, maybe Jenny will let me. I'm not giving you permission here. I mean, you can do what you want. Oh, can I just take it? I can just do it? I like the idea that I have this power. So, yes, I bestow upon you the history of King Arthur. Well, the only reason I ask is because, like, I have to go into a little bit of medieval history because, like, the ancient stuff is ancient, but then it gets Christianized. So it's a little bit outside of our purview. But yes, maybe in our odds and sod season, I will tell you the history of King Arthur. It does go back to the Dark Ages and it goes back to this time. So, you know, it is within our purview, I would argue. It does. I've always also not done it because I know you want to do sacrificial kings, but I can just do the groundwork for you. You could lay some groundwork, sure. So we're going to try to sum things up here as best we can. Most of us associate King Arthur with the chivalric, chivalric? Chivalric. With the chivalric. With the chivalric. Jenny, say it for me. Okay, so most of us associate King Arthur with the chivalric French tradition. Should I just do the whole paragraph? No, I just needed Jenny to say that for me because sometimes I have trouble with French words. Yeah, so in that tradition, you have the Knights of the Round Table, Lancelot and Guinevere, some incest with Morgan Le Fay, Excalibur, the search for the Holy Grail. A lot of that is a heavily Christianized 12th century invention. They had to get the incest in, though. They did. Well, they had to get the incest in, and they had to get the demonization of pagan women with power and also women with sexual agency. Okay, I have to stop now. That's true. I mean, the monks needed some kind of thrill. Anyway, the oldest versions of King Arthur are quite different. So Arthur appears first in Welsh sources. One of the earliest is the Historia Britonum, dating from roughly 828 AD. Possibly those dates are disputed. This work was written by a Welsh monk, Nennius, possibly, again, disputed, about the history of the Britons, the indigenous British people who were in the British Isles prior to the Romans arriving. It's the story of their war against the invading Saxons, who came in after the Romans left. In that chronicle, Arthur is not a king, but a very successful military leader. The events documented in the Historia Britonum occurred about 300 years before they were written down, so right around the 500s AD. 
King Arthur also appears in other ancient Welsh sources, sometimes as a sort of supernatural defender of the realm, sometimes as a human warrior. Some of the sources might be even older than the historian Britonum, although dates, again, are disputed. Anyway, in one source, the Annals Cambriae, which really looks like Annals, I'm sorry, everyone is going to be shocked and appalled that I can't get through the word Annals without thinking about Annals. The earliest of which is a copy written in the 1100s AD of an original from the 900s. So this source specifically mentions that Arthur died in the Battle of Camlin. Quote, and there was a great mortality in Britain and Ireland. And the annal gives us a concrete date for this. It happened in 537 AD. King Arthur and the Battle of Camlin are believed to both be mythical. Andrew Brees, a professor of linguistics at the University of Navarre, believes that the battle could have been historical or been a mythologized retelling of a historical event. He proposed that this battle, the Battle of Camlin, occurred in the aftermath of famine, which was the cause of the great mortality. He believes that Camlin was fought not over gold or political disputes, but over food. The original battle was probably a cattle raid, and and we've seen a lot about how people in Ireland mythologize cattle raids. Like, if you want to know more, listen to our episode on the cattle raid of Cooley. I would also say that cattle raids in ancient Britain and Ireland weren't necessarily not over political disputes and power struggles because cattle were a wealth signifier. So people were raiding cattle to make a statement about their own power and wealth and to redistribute wealth, essentially. I would also say that particularly if a lot of these myths are arising from this particular time period, as the Chinese um, quote said earlier, you know, essentially feed your people or lose your throne. Like there's no use in having strings of gold if you can't feed people. At this particular point in time, cattle were gold. That's all there is to it. But they were also food. Yeah, they were both food and gold. There's a lot of interwoven strands here about this claim that a cattle raid was about food or about politics or about gold, you know, because it could be about all three. (laughs) That's all I'm saying. Cattle were all three at once while also being a cute cow. Anyway, another scholar Flint Johnson says, quote, the most reasonable reason why Arthur's death was associated with 537 is because as a king, he was associated with the fertility of his kingdom and 537 was a period of famine. It would have made perfect sense to a medieval scholar with a British cultural background that the death of a renowned king had caused that. Sacrificial kings, you guys. Yeah, or he had to die then, because if he dies then, he's being sacrificed for the land. The land can be revived by his bloodshed. That is basically how it theoretically works, yeah. So both Flint and Breeze believe that the Battle of Camlin was a real battle, but this theory also works if you go with a more mainstream interpretation that it was a, a mythical reinterpretation of a, of a battle, or perhaps it was just mythical. It could have been a myth set in a time of known famine to retroactively explain that famine, When the legendary king dies, the crops fail. That's an old story. So let's turn our eyes to Scandinavia now, shall we? So there's both archaeological and mythological evidence that Scandinavia was hit hard. First, listen to this. Quote, Brothers will fight and kill each other. Sisters' children will defile kinship. It is harsh in the world. Whoredom, rife. An axe age, a sword age. 
Shields are riven, a wind age, a wolf age, before the world goes headlong. No man will have mercy on another. A wolf age. A sword age. An axe age. Yeah, that's incredible, right? That's the poetic Edda, the Dronki translation, and it is, I just love the language in the poetic Edda. It's so visceral. So this passage describes Fimble Winter, I'm probably mispronouncing it, which is the mighty winter that kills most, if not all, life on Earth in the time before Ragnarok. In Viking legend, Ragnarok is the great battle at the end of the world where all the gods are destined to die. Spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> According to the Icelandic volume, The Poetic Edda, which is very disputed in terms of dating but couldn't have been written prior to 870 AD, which is when Iceland was settled, Fimble Winter was three years of uninterrupted winter with snow flying from every direction that led to war and violence. Or perhaps it was just a pretty much like on a hyperbolic, just factual description of the events of the years of 536 AD. 536 to 539 or so. Absolutely. So there's archaeological evidence that the Vikings may have experienced something like this during those years. Now, according to archaeological evidence, between the years of 500 and 600 AD, about 75% of the villages in some parts of Sweden were abandoned. And in southern Norway, there was a major decrease in formal burials, as much as 90 to 95%. That indicates that people were dying amidst some amount of social upheaval, which meant the old customs of burial were breaking down. I would also say that might mean that there was plague and people were, were being disposed of and burnt or other ways. Absolutely. Or just dumped in the sea. I mean, that happens in plagues as well. Not a good idea to dump your bodies in the sea. I'm just saying. <laughs> Pele, Hawaiian goddess of volcanoes, fire, and rebirth. Maeve, Celtic warrior queen and nemesis of heroes. Kiyohime, Japanese fire-breathing snake demon. Pesta, Norwegian spirit of the Black Death. Our book, Women of Myth, is a fascinating look at women and femme characters in world mythology, including goddesses, heroines, and monsters with captivating illustrations by Ringo Award-nominated artist Sarah Richard. It's the perfect gift for the mythology lover in your life, including yourself. Find Women of Myth wherever books are sold. So the impact of this event wasn't just in Europe and Asia. It was felt worldwide. If we travel to the Americas, we can see even more. One of the places profoundly affected was Teotihuacan. We covered Teotihuacan in depth in its own episode last year. Teotihuacan is an ancient pre-Columbian city in Mexico, just about 25 miles northeast of Mexico City. It was originally founded around the 1st century AD, and its history was shaped by volcanoes. When it was first founded, it was by refugees from another volcanic eruption. Its main export, at the height of its power, was volcanic obsidian used to make ceremonial and also practical knives. Teotihuacan was fully abandoned by 750 AD, but there are signs that before that, the city underwent serious social upheaval in the 500s AD. Around that time, more skeletons of children and teenagers were found in the ground with evidence of malnutrition, suggesting a period of drought or famine or perhaps both. 
While this period is not well documented, and they did have some writing, but it isn't fully interpreted, it's quite possible that this was a time of widespread drought, famine, death, and suffering. It may also have led to discontent with the ruling classes. Studies show that by the 600s AD, there was widespread destruction here. It was only the elite palaces and structures that were destroyed, suggesting an uprising from within, where the common people rebelled against the ruling class and eat the rich situation, if you will. Now, we don't know anything about the religion of Teotihuacan, but the Aztecs who came after crafted their own religion in part around the iconography they found in the ruins of that city. And in their religion, we can find traces of trauma from an ancient volcanic eruption, perhaps as interpreted through the lens of Teotihuacan. Our understanding of the Aztec religious beliefs is also imperfect. There has been a lot of propaganda put out by Spanish colonists. The scholar Camilla Townsend has translated codexes about Aztec history and mythology written by Aztecs and for Aztec audiences without the interference of Spanish priests. They're called the Shupowali. And this is a quote from her book, The Fifth Son, that describes some of the Aztec beliefs and how they relate to Teotihuacan from these sources. So, quote, The Aztecs later envisioned Teotihuacan as the birthplace of their world. They said it was the scene of their storied hero, Nanahuatzin's courageous self-immolation. Sometimes they told the tale in great detail, saying that when the first four imperfect worlds, each with its own sun and living creatures, had all been destroyed and the earth was left in darkness, the gods met together at Teotihuacan. Quote within the quote, The gods gathered and took counsel at Teotihuacan. They said to each other, Who will carry the burden? Who will take it upon himself to see that there will be a sun, that there will be a dawn? They had great faith in one called Tecusis Tecat, who volunteered, and they offered him the honor of a forked hair and feather headdress for his sacrifice and other gifts. They chose Nanahuatzin for his very ordinariness. When midnight arrived and the moment had come, Tecusis Tecat found he could not do the deed. It was the ordinary Nanahuatzin who shut his eyes and threw himself into the flames, quote within the quote within the quote, in order that the dawn might break. He suffered, and in his bravery, he became the sun. I mean, wow, that is intense. And I find I really moving. I don't know, maybe that's just me. I find that really moving. I do too. So, like we said, there's a lot of demonization and misinformation about the Aztecs out there. But there does seem to have been a preoccupation in Aztec mythology about the sun disappearing and what had to be done to ensure it came back. And this does not surprise me given the volcanic history of that area and what was going on during their civilization. But if you look at what was happening during this time, the sun disappeared for 18 months. Of course, people would have feelings about that. But before that, you know, you have localized like, you know, even if you go further back into your mythology and the trauma of your mythology in this area, you've got the bigger eruptions that led to the founding of Teotihuacan, which would have had localized like not seeing the sun for a long time. Like this is on a global level. But there would have been stuff on like a micro level in this area that had existed before in their past. Yeah, and there's lots of, of evidence of volcanic eruptions that occurred within a few centuries of 536 AD. Like this wasn't an uncommon occurrence in this time period. Yeah, and like all I'm saying is like in this area of the world, it would have led to a lot of instability in the climate, and you might have lost the sun as a result of something that happened quite far away on the continent of South America. 
that you can't see but somehow has made the sun disappear. So, this is something that the people of Teotihuacan may have lived through, and it's something that may have been transmitted forward into the Aztec culture as well. And I would say not may have lived through, they definitely lived through. Contemporaries of the people of Teotihuacan, the Maya, were one of the most advanced civilizations in the pre-Columbian Americas. They lived in the northwestern part of the Isthmus of Central America with a complex writing and calendrical system, mathematics and bustling urban centers with stunning artwork and architecture, megalithic construction and pyramids. The Maya flourished from around the 2000s BC, depending on when you start counting, to the 900s AD, although many of their cities were deserted by then. It's all a bit uneven. I think some of the cities started to be deserted by the 700s AD. But starting in the 500s AD, for about a century, there was a major gap in their history. The great Mayan cities such as Tikal and Calakmul, both with populations of of roughly 50,000 people, stopped building for a century around this time. The rulers disappeared. The king of Tikal was captured and killed by his enemies. There was violence. There are signs that the great Mayan cities emptied out and the region descended into internal warfare. Researchers call this period the Mayan hiatus, and by some accounts, although I have seen different dates, it lasted from roughly 534 to 593 AD. Thousands of miles to the south, the effect of the volcanic winter was felt a bit differently. In the ancient Atacama Desert in Peru, the Moshi people thrived from around 100 to 700 AD. Like the people of Teotihuacan, they suffered a major setback around the 500s AD that may have led to their downfall. The Moshi were an agricultural people who built a complex series of sophisticated canals to irrigate their crops in the desert. They were highly artistic with artifacts decorated with scenes from daily life, including hunting and fishing and war, sacrifice, sex, and religious ceremonies. They were particularly well-known for their ceramics, also their gold, they did electroplating, and their monumental temples. In South America, the environmental effects of 536 AD hit a bit differently. Generally, what historians believe nowadays is that a strong El Nino weather event wreaked havoc in the area in the 500s AD, first causing several decades of intense rainfall, followed by decades of severe drought and a drop in temperature. While again, we don't have written documentation from this time period, the archaeology from the Moshe shows that the society became militarized. People started building forts, crafting weapons, and concentrating their settlements in defendable valleys, indicating a period of intensified warfare and violence, possibly as people fought over increasingly scarce resources. By the 700s AD, the culture had largely collapsed. To the south, the Nazca culture followed a similar trajectory. We did an episode on them too, called the Nazca Line, Secrets in the Sand. The Nazca were known for their stunning petroglyphs, etched into the desert. Like the Moshi, they lived from roughly around 100 to 800 AD and suffered serious social upheaval in the 500s. It's clear that the Nazca were also dealing with a period of heavy rain that they were not prepared for. Major ceremonial centers have been found buried in sediment from flash floods, with bodies of drowned people found in the sediment. That was followed by decades of drought. This led them to make changes to the types of petroglyphs they created in the high desert plateaus, changing from elaborate animal shapes to long, narrow trapezoids to call down rain from the mountains where it usually came from. 
More violence appears in their art around this time, too, especially decapitation and war scenes. And there's evidence that a colonizing culture, the Wari, came down from the highlands and oppressed the people in this area. And that could have been due to climate change, I'm not sure, but possibly. And you can argue about timing here. I have seen a lot of different dates thrown around for various changes to cultures like the Nazca and and then Moshe. The 540s and the 560s for various weather events and social upheaval happening, for instance, that may still have been after effects of the volcanic events of 536 AD. Like the El Nino weather event could have been something that was caused several years out from then, right? But it is interesting that among all of these cultures, the people of Teotihuacan, the Maya, the Moshe, and the Nazca, the culture has a serious wobble in the 500s, sometimes lasting a century, followed by 200 to 300 years of hanging on before the culture collapses. It's almost like they're all on the same timeline. Yeah, it's super creepy. Human populations are resilient, and that resiliency sometimes masks centuries of generational trauma. Economic destabilization, widespread crop failure, and famine and drought, and the social upheaval that comes with it doesn't always end a civilization all at once. Its effects can echo down the generations. Don't we know it, Bronze Age collapse or decline? That's something that makes me think that David Key's claims about things happening hundreds of years later in Europe and Asia being caused by this aren't as out there as you'd think, because look at this pattern. I don't think that they're as out there as you think either. And I think realistically, most societies can keep running only because everyone has a belief in it. Like we saw it in 2020, right? Like how much longer would it have taken before things totally collapsed if people didn't get help from the government and things like that? People hang on for a long time. And I think that the Bronze Age collapse is actually a great example of that because historians don't want to call it a collapse now because the society, apparently, from what I can tell, um, this is what the argument is, didn't collapse immediately upon the Thera eruption. It took a few hundred years. But actually taking a few hundred years doesn't doesn't look like it's that out there. Like that seems to have happened in the Americas as well. Yeah, and there's a whole debate with that because we're going to cover Thier this year. Like there was another volcano in Iceland that they think might have led to the collapse. I've also heard about a volcano maybe in Alaska. I honestly think it kind of doesn't matter. You get a collapse like that or a decline because of several things happening in succession. And again, I feel like we started looking at that already when we were looking at the um, Ten Plagues of Egypt. Like these things don't happen on their own. They tend to be a succession of things. They might start with the earliest event that shows the cracks and then it just keeps going. Well, that's the thing. Like a volcanic event like this can cause other catastrophes that unspool over decades and centuries. And again, you may have other volcanic events that happen that then also probably coupled together make the worst year ever or the collapse of the Bronze Age or the entrance to the Dark Ages. Yeah. So let's take a look at who's responsible here. Oh, are we going to blame the volcanoes? It's not their fault. Volcano's going to volcano. It is absolutely the volcano's fault. Look, the volcano did it, Jen. (laughs) You just... You just want to blame a volcano for being a volcano. Like, I don't know. Volcanoes also, like, heat the planet. Like, you know, they keep the lava in check sometimes. 
Uh, I don't know that erupting lava is keeping lava in check, but okay. I said sometimes. No one's perfect all the time. We all focus on when the volcano does erupt, but can we give them credit for when they don't erupt? Can we? Yeah, which is most of the time. You're a volcanic (laughs) enabler. That's what you are. I'm a volcano apologist, apparently. (laughs) You are. You're an apologist and an enabler. That's what you are, Jen McMenemy. So it wasn't always 100% known that a volcano did it. Other possibilities proposed include a comet and a meteor, but researchers these days are pretty sure that, in fact, a volcano did do it. The volcanoes are guilty. Stop trying them without letting them get on the stand and talk to us. Oh, they're not going to talk to us because they don't speak English or any other language. They might burble at us. Like, if they're burbling, that's a problem. I now want some fan art of me cuddling a volcano. Disturbing. (laughs) Not in a weird way, just like a little... Like a little baby volcano, like a little like a little puppy. Self-destructive urges that you have. You keep asking me what I want for my birthday, that's it. <laughs> Jen's like, I want to cuddle a volcano. I'm here trying to talk her out of things that probably aren't the safest. That'll probably end up with the end of the podcast and, and me winning a Darwin Award for Human Cuddles Volcano dies instantly. You all knew that, you know, the podcast was going to end somehow. I just mean like a soft toy. I don't mean like an actual like volcano, like a stuffed animal. God. You know you won't find it satisfying unless it's an actual volcano. You know that. I know that. I mean, I'm not like weird. I just have a deep, healthy respect for them. Anyway, let's talk about why you're going to malign them again. So scientists know that a volcano is the guilty party because of the ice cores. Always the ice cores. Yeah, I know. The smoking gun, shall we say. Ice from the polar ice caps preserves the chemistry of ancient atmospheres, and this information can be accessed and analyzed by sampling ice cores. Scientists have tested thin shavings of ice cores that represent precise years and found spikes in sulfuric acid, a surefire sign of a volcanic eruption, a large one that reached the poles. So sulfur spikes show up in both northern and southern hemispheres, suggesting that the effects were worldwide. What the evidence here suggests is that in this time, the world was covered in a volcanic veil of sulfuric dust. This would have blocked out the sun and lowered the temperature of the earth by as much as 4.5 degrees Fahrenheit in some places. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot, but this is the overall temperature of the entire earth. That's enough cold to cause like a perpetual winter and to wipe out crops. And further research suggests that it wasn't just one volcano that erupted. It could have been two, one in 536 and one in 539 to the 540s. More recent research suggests that it was three or could have even been more volcanoes. They were all just having a volcano Olympics. There is some evidence to suggest that it was multiple volcanoes. Yeah, they were all competing to see who could, like, be the biggest eruptor. Jen wants to spoon all of these volcanoes. I don't want to spoon a volcano. Okay, well, please don't. So (laughs) the question is, which volcano or volcanoes was it? And that is still a mystery. I love this. This is where the podcast turns into a true crime story. Who was the volcanic mass murderer or mass murderers who wiped out crops and caused people to die of starvation, thirst, plague, cannibalism, and violence in massive numbers? Because that is the scale of the atrocity here. Who is this mass murderer and will they kill again? Yes. (laughs) volcano's gonna volcano (laughs) so one thing that's really cool that i learned is that volcanoes all have their own chemical fingerprint 
You can link a volcanic deposit or ash deposit that you find to a specific volcano based on that fingerprint. And you can also do this with the chemical deposits in ice cores, sort of, sometimes. That's important because those ice cores can be more precisely dated than carbon dating, sometimes. Again, there are caveats. So, let's take a look at some of the usual suspects, shall we? Let's take a look at our our lineup here. Yeah, we're going to talk about my second love. Obviously, my first love is Vesuvius, but my second love, one of the volcanoes that uh, particularly drew me to this to the subject is Krakatoa. Now, Krakatoa is one of the deadliest volcanoes in the world. It's located in the Sindra Strait between Indonesia and Sumatra, and it's basically an island or rather an archipelago at this point. Its topography is constantly changing due to volcanic activity. Its last major eruption was in 1883, when it erupted in a series of enormous explosions, 13,000 times more powerful than that of the atomic bomb when it destroyed Hiroshima, and accompanying tsunamis that killed over 36,000 people. Krakatoa was like what brought me down the volcanic rabbit hole, and I'm just going to say the 1883 eruption is fascinating. The entire island blew itself apart, and now... Now there's a new island there and a new a new Krakatoa. They call it Anak Krak, the baby of Krakatoa. Yeah. So is Krakatoa powerful enough to have caused a worldwide dust veil and centuries of global upheaval? Probably. It's been very active over the centuries, too, and its eruptions have been extensively documented. And a clue shows up in the documentation. In China, in 535 AD, there's a record of a low, thunderous sound to the southwest, the direction of Indonesia. Not long after that, yellow dust started to fall all over the land, thick enough to scoop up in both hands, and that year, winter continued all year. The Javanese Book of Kings is a historical document from the 1800s, a collection of other documents that are much older. It has this corresponding entry, quote, A mighty thunder, which was answered by the furious shaking of the earth, pitch darkness, thunder and lightning, and then came forth a furious gale, together with a hard rain, a deadly storm darkening the entire world. In no time, there came a great flood. When the water subsided, it could be seen that the island of Java had been split in two, thus creating the island of Sumatra. Now, Does that sound like a major volcanic eruption to me? Yes, yes, yes. The shaking of the earth, the pitch darkness, the thunder and lightning, volcanic lightning, and then the great flood, maybe a tsunami. At the end of it, the Sunda Strait is transformed. I couldn't find anything on when geologically people think the Sunda Strait was created uh, or when Sumatra was created or whether it was due to a volcano. So I can't corroborate the geology of this. However... There are a few things that make Krakatoa look less like our culprit here. That passage from the Book of Kings doesn't date to 535 AD or 536. It doesn't match what's showing up in the Chinese documents. It dates to 416 AD, too early. Historians say that there's no other documentation anywhere or any contemporary accounts of a volcanic eruption in this area or any physical evidence. So it's unlikely that whatever this documentation is referring to, it is a volcanic eruption of Krakatoa. Maybe it just refers to a really bad storm that just got a bit mythologized. That's kind of the thought at this point. 
David Keyes, the researcher who's written a book on 536 AD, took it seriously, though. He went on a research expedition out to Krakatoa to see if there was physical evidence that backed up the theory that Krakatoa was the culprit. And this was in the documentary he filmed, The Year the Sun Turned Black, which I've been quoting. In that documentary, they found a huge layer of volcanic rock with charcoal above and below that could be carbon dated to determine the age of that layer. What they found was that the older layer dated to roughly 6,600 BC, and the newer one dated to about 1215 AD, and that's very broad. Throughout the documentary after that, Keyes went on to say that the result backed up his conclusion that the volcano erupted in 536 AD, which I think is a little misleading. I found that pretty misleading, and it made me understand why a lot of historians find David Keyes to be controversial. If he's making, you know, sweeping conclusions like that, I would say that the data doesn't rule it out, but it also certainly doesn't rule it in. No, it's inconclusive. And you can't, we can't, we can't convict Krakatoa based on such circumstantial evidence. Sorry. Absolutely not. We have a higher standard of proof here. Yeah, and subsequent uh, subsequent drilling of the Sundra Strait found no evidence of an eruption in 536 AD or 535 AD. So I think, Counselor, your, your honor, that we can rule Krakatoa out for now. So let's turn to our next suspect here, Ilopango in El Salvador. Ilopango is now dormant, but it is a volcano that once underwent a massive explosive event. No, no, they're called climactic events. Sorry, a massive climactic event that may have had a profound effect on the Maya people. So research suggests that sometime between the 3rd and 6th century AD, Ilopango erupted in a gigantic explosion more than 100 times bigger than the Mount St. Helens eruption. For a long time, people believed it was this volcano, that caused the Mayan hiatus. While evidence for major weather events in Europe and Asia tends to be around 536 AD, evidence for a lot of the events that happened in the Americas tends to be around 540 AD. For that reason, and because of how the sulfur spikes show up in the northern versus southern hemisphere, some researchers believe that the first volcano to erupt was probably located in a higher latitude whereas the later one was somewhere in the tropics, above the equator, but not by a lot. Ilopango is the major suspect for the later eruption. There's a rock formation in Central America called Tierra Blanca Joven, Young White Earth in Spanish. It's basically just a huge, massively thick deposit of volcanic rock and ash, evidence of a massive volcanic eruption. Recent research has found that the Tierra Blanca Joven extends into the ocean, making the eruption that caused it far bigger than was previously thought. Carbon dating on trees found in the ash layer suggests that this eruption did happen in the first half of the 500s AD, practically a smoking gun. However, carbon dating isn't pinpoint accurate. Sediments found in Greenland ice cores that match the chemical signature found in the Tierra Blanca Joven dated to 431 AD, not 535 to 540 AD. And these are more accurate than carbon dating. So it turns out Ilopango isn't the culprit either. So there's another volcano, El Chichon, an active volcano in Mexico. The mountain is a complex series of domes and a tough ring, not a singular cone, but it does look like a big volcanic crater. 
It erupted in 1982, most recently, ejecting high sulfur magma and pyroclastic flows. It destroyed nine villages, killed 1,900 people, and created a crater lake at the bottom of the crater. By the way, I just have to go on a little bit of a detour about this lake. It's only a kilometer across, not even a mile, and you do not want to swim in it. You do not. This is why. It's acidic. It has frequent CO2 gas fluxes, and it's often shaken by earthquakes from beneath the crater floor, and it's fed by a boiling spring. It's giving off Lake of Hell vibes, this lake. This is why you can see in a lot of ancient mythologies why they felt like certain lakes or caverns were uh, entrances, portals into hell. Like, imagine the amount of smoking lakes you would have seen. You would have been like, that goes straight to the underworld. Could you imagine Crater Lake, the Crater Lake we just covered, the deepest lake in in the U.S., being this kind of a lake, like this acidic, smoking, boiling lake on a scale like this? Unbelievable. And it must have been at one point because this lake is caused by an eruption that happened in 1982. So it's fairly recent, which is probably why it's like this. Well, possible. It's also possible that Crater Lake's eruption is so much deeper it's possible that this is a shallower lake and that what's coming up is more like from the actual volcano, whereas Crater Lake may have spent a lot of that stuff when it ejected. I, d- I don't know the answer here. Um, I haven't done that deep dive into it, but the idea of a lake as big as Crater Lake being a volcanic gates to hell type lake is terrifying. And also now I'm fascinated with it. Now I can't I can't stop thinking about it. Can't look away. We can't stop peering over that caldera. <laughs> Trying to spoon that volcano. Not everything is about spooning. I mean, look, we're not the only ones who have had this thought. A lot of volcanic mythology and volcano gods and goddesses we've seen tie volcanoes to sex. Like, there's always a story about how the volcano is erupting because a a volcano god got jilted or rejected romantically. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And a lot of times volcano gods and goddesses are linked to sex and rebirth and life and death. And I love it. I mean, you've got Hades, you've got Pele, you've got the god we talked about in Crater Lake. You've got so many different gods. That, and, and also, the other thing about volcanoes is they're very liminal spaces. A lot of times they're tied to the world below, to the underworld. And that's because they didn't know what was coming up out of it. And that's, again, why you have gods of death and rebirth and life associated with them. Again, how can you not find this fascinating? I find it fascinating. I feel like I'm so judged for my love of volcanoes and maybe volcano gods and goddesses. I mean, it's just the the sexualizing of the volcanoes. The scientists who study them are sexualizing them. I wouldn't have called it a climactic event, but that's what they call it. I wouldn't have called it an eruption, but that's what they call it. I have to use their terminology. Right. We didn't invent Volcano Pornhub. The scientists did. (laughs) Also, scientists, thank you so much for the work you do. We are just teasing you. We appreciate it. So, El Chishan... Evidence suggests that this volcano also erupted sometime in the vicinity of 540 AD, and that eruption was much bigger than the one in 1982. Ashfall has been detected throughout Maya territory, and its tephra, or ash and rockfall, has been found as far as 86 miles away, which is not the biggest volcanic eruption we've covered, but it's sizable, right? The ashfall has been dated to roughly 546 AD, plus or minus 16 years, which puts it within, uh, I guess, a better range of possibility than. 6600 BC to 1200 AD. I mean, it's closer. So this one is possible, and it's maybe one of the more likely ones to have erupted around this time. It hasn't been confirmed 100% because the sulfur spikes in the Greenland ice sheets haven't been chemically matched with it as far as I know. I just don't know if anyone's done that research. I couldn't find it. 
So another likely culprit is potentially a volcano in Iceland. Studying ice from a Swiss glacier, a graduate student named Laura Hartman found two microscopic particles of volcanic glass whose chemical signatures matched other glass particles found in the lakes and peat bogs of Europe, as well as an ice core from Greenland. Those shards had a chemical signature similar to Icelandic volcanoes. Based on this rather scant evidence, some have claimed that an Icelandic volcano is the culprit. However, further studies suggest that the chemical similarities to Icelandic volcanoes aren't as definite as first thought, and some of these volcanic particles couldn't be accurately dated, so the connection is very circumstantial. As Icelandic Volcano's defense lawyer would say, this is circumstantial evidence. It's too scant. You can't convict based on this. Yeah. Research suggests that the presence of even one volcanic particle may be a sign of a volcanic eruption. But for a climactic eruption with this much worldwide significance, you'd probably expect to see a larger volume of particles. And there are roughly 32 active volcanoes in Iceland. So this only narrows things down to a region and not a specific culprit. Volcano in Iceland, evidence is circumstantial, not enough to convict. El Shishan, possible, but further testing and investigation needs to be done before we can convict. Seems like Krakatoa is off the hook. Seems like Ilopango is off the hook. Our final suspect is Rabal in Papua New Guinea. So Rabal is one of the most active and dangerous volcanoes in Papua New Guinea. It erupted last in 1937, destroying the nearby town of Rabal and creating a huge submerged caldera that has had ongoing volcanic activity since. There's currently a new volcanic cone, Tverver, probably mispronouncing that, hopefully not, that was formed as a result of this eruption. So evidence suggests that roughly 1,400 years ago, which is about the right time period, this volcano had a much bigger eruption, Explosivity Index 6. And a lot of these eruptions that I've talked about already are also Explosivity Index 6. It keeps getting referred to as the largest volcanic eruption ever on Earth, ever recorded in history. And a lot of these other ones have had their eruptions from this time described that way too. So it's kind of like first woman to put her name on a coin. First woman to have her face on a coin in the ancient world every time. <laughs> It's like, oh, no, we meant this is the first one. It was her, not her as a goddess. Oh, right, 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 right. So more precise dating has been done on the eruption in question, suggesting that it actually happened in 667 to 699 AD, which is too late to be our volcano. At least too late to be the instigating volcano. Could have been one that capped things off. Could have been one that contributed, for sure. So we don't know what volcano caused the events of 536 AD for sure. It is still a mystery, and we don't know if or when it will happen again. We can only hope it won't be in our lifetimes. That is my hope, and the thing I pray for every night is that it will not be in our lifetime. As she cuddles up to her volcanic cone. I mean, look, I feel like if I appease it a little bit, maybe it just won't happen. Jen is the only thing standing between us and volcanic winter. No, it's me and it's me and the old man, Crater Lake. And, and the <laughs> old man, so that too. <laughs> this is terrifying. I'm even more, I, I have even more climate anxiety than before after all this. The only thing we can know for sure is that when it does happen, I'm saying when, cultures all over the world will be profoundly changed, possibly for many centuries after. So that's it for this week. Come and find us on social. We're still circling the drain of Twitter or X or whatever it's called this week. 
We're at Ancient Hist Fan. And then appropriately on all the other platforms that matter, we're at Ancient History Fangirl on Facebook, Instagram, threads, and sometimes TikTok. So we also have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash ancient history fangirl where you can get extra episodes. You can get more content from us. You can get videos, all kinds of great stuff. Julius Caesar reviewing Cocaine Bear. Kukulin reviewed the Batman. It was a very nuanced discussion. We're doing a homegrown history series on history in our own backyards. And I've done a bunch of episodes on weird history in Vermont, which has been really fun. Yeah, I've done some fun stuff about um, pirates here in North Carolina and the Venus flytrap. We've got new content going up weekly. You also get our episodes ad-free and a day early. We've got some patrons to thank, don't we, Jenny? We sure do. And apologies to anyone whose name we mispronounce. Our new patrons are Jack Straw, Amy Thomas Owen, Maggie Davis, Kirsten Hewson, Lindsay Thomas, Monica, just Monica, Lauren Langston, and Carol Webster. Thank you so much. You guys are really, truly the reason why we keep this podcast going. Yeah. And remember, you can become a Patreon at patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl. Membership starts at just $3 a month, and we would say it's worth it. Absolutely worth it. It's the sole reason we're able to keep bringing you this great content. Thank you all so much, and we will see you next week. Bye. 